Hi, welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, I'm a programmer at TIFFNOW, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Ema Reynolds, an editor and documentary filmmaker whose credits include cutting Patty Brannock's wonderful I Went Down, Connor McPherson's The Actors, Neil Heary's Small Engine Repair, episodes of Shameless and Funland, and plenty of other projects. Her documentaries include Cuba Was Here and The Farthest, which won the Emmy for Outstanding Science and Technology Documentary in 2018. Emer's first dramatic feature, Joyride, pairs Olivia Coleman with newcomer Charlie Reed for a story about two very different people, a new mother and a teenage runaway, who find themselves traveling together through the Irish countryside under duress. It's available on digital and on demand across Canada today, and it's awfully charming, and you should check it out. Emer picked Arrival. Denis Villeneuve's Oscar-winning 2016 genre drama starring Amy Adams as Louise Banks, a linguist who's recruited by the U.S. military to moderate first contact with an extraterrestrial race, and soon finds herself tasked with deciphering not just an alien language, but its implications for her future, and maybe the future of everyone on Earth. Have you seen Arrival? You should see Arrival. This is someone else's movie. I have a huge love for science fiction. Um, um, my background is in physics and love, love science fiction, love science fiction movies and, um, and novels. And, and what I'm looking for or what I'm interested in or what I particularly enjoy about science fiction, um, is that it, it affords these huge themes, these really interesting ideas about what it means to be human or what our experience is of the universe in a kind of a non, um, non-realistic non way. You know, you might be out past the, the limb of Orion or whatever, you know, you're in a space. But what I don't like is, or what I'm really looking for is films that treat that with with the intelligence and the, you know, the respect and the, and the depth that it, it 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 calls for, you know. And Arrival is that with bells on, as far as I'm concerned. It really takes this huge themes to do with, time and and distance and grief and love and communication and can we ever you know understand another and and deals with it in, in such an intelligent calm measured trusting watchful way you know and so I love it I love it on story terms I love it on thematic terms I love it on the quality of its its approach to the ideas and as a filmmaker, I love it in every other way, too. I love the look of it. I love the music. I love the sound design, the design, the costumes, the editing. You know, I, I it, it's a huge favorite of mine and a, and a, and a repeat viewing favorite. You know, it, that's one of the, the glories of it, I think, as a film. Oh, it's absolutely designed to be revisited and re-revisited. The, the, the fun thing about Arrival for me was watching the rest of the world discover what Denis Villeneuve does because um, I had seen his his earlier films, the ones that no one remembers. I think they're on the Criterion Channel now in North America, but his first two films, August 32nd on Earth and Maelstrom, are tiny little Quebecois meditations on fate and chance and destiny and mysticism and and the unknowability of other people as much as the unknowability of the universe. They're cosmic in a tiny, tiny way. I, I, have you had the chance to catch up to them? Have you ever seen yeah, them? I, I Before I saw Arrival, I'd seen all of them. Oh, good uh, for you. Yeah, <laughs> big fan and, and a big fan of, I wasn't a huge fan of, of um, Prisoners, ironically, but I loved anime. I loved uh, Polytechnique, August 32nd. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, so 
you know, was so excited when I heard he was making it to see, uh, you know, how much of that that lower budget perhaps or indie auteur sensibility would how much of it he'd retain and translate into this bigger because he'd made Sicario just before as well, but mm-hmm. that that was a bigger a bigger canvas too. But uh, you know. And yeah. now he's making now he seems to be making exclusively sci-fi. So he's uh, <laughs> he's my guy. Yeah, he's where he's always wanted to be, I think. And and the the novelty of watching him break on the world stage. I mean, I remember when Prisoners came to the festival, it was the same year as Enemy, and these were just like they were arguing with each other about who he was gonna be, where he was gonna go as a filmmaker. Yeah. And then he made Sicario, which again, of course, right? I mean, a studio offers you that opportunity and you take it, but you, he makes it tactile and, and physical and, and strange okay. and rhythmic. Yep. Yep. It's his thing. And then Arrival just shows up and it's the movie he, it's a movie he had already made really in a strange way. That whole, the whole aspect of revisiting your past self and present self is happening in the movie because that is, it is sort of what, um, yeah, polytechnique actually factors in quite a bit as well with the perspective shifts and the and the and the isolation and the sense of um the sense of being alone with yourself in the worst moments of your own life. And on Sundays, the way it kind of, you know, it's kind of tracking back to this origin stories and you know, yeah. the slow reveal and you know, yeah, he he had definitely and isn't it wonderful to see a filmmaker coming out of um having found a voice early and mm-hmm. doing it, it may be, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming much smaller budgets, but so I've made that assumption, but I certainly think 32nd of August was quite low budget, but oh yeah, you have established a, a tone and a voice and, and, and clearly the sort of way you were going to try to figure things out going forward and then to see it just blossoming and, and, you know, in, increasing and, you know, it, it was a joy to see it. And uh, yeah, yeah, I couldn't think of anyone better. And it's really interesting as well to see, um, well, you know, if you've read the short story that uh, Rival's based on, you know, like there were other ways that they could have gone. They could have really dug into the the minutiae of the language, the way the short story does and the different types of understanding of language. But they understood very early what was the heart of it, you know, this this woman's story, this this woman's grief and 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 how it would tie into this this huge international moment you know of of aliens arriving yeah and to that end we have the one it was the one thing in the film that wasn't nominated for an oscar if i remember correctly which is amy adams not getting a nomination for best actress when it is quite possibly the performance of her career i mean i I remember seeing it in a a screening all my memories are now tiff memories which is kind of bizarre uh but that's where i saw it that's where most of his movies have premiered in, in toronto um and I saw that and Nocturnal Animals exactly 12 hours apart. Uh, <laughs> Arrival was screened for the Toronto Press at nine o'clock at night. The next morning we saw Nocturnal Animals. Um, two absolutely different performances. And the nature of Nocturnal Animals, which I'm not a fan of, is that she can't, she's sleepwalking. Amy Adams isn't sleepwalking through the role, but the character is sleepwalking through the world. And so she has to just turn herself off. And having just watched a version of Amy Adams who is engaged and alive and then ultimately must dull herself to this future grief when when you realize what's been going on, it's just this virtuoso turn. And of all of the things to be overlooked by awards bodies, and it happened, it wasn't just the Oscars, it happened all over the place. Uh, It was stunning to me that people missed the point that without her, there is no movie. 
I mean, I completely agree how extraordinary she is in it. And when you, you know, as we're talking about it being a film that rewards second viewings and, and multiple viewings, you realize that the complexity of her performance keeps growing in your in your every viewing because mm. she's quite clearly having to play for the first viewing it pretty straight that you are not straight, but you know, like it's a straight line that you understand in the past she's lost a child and this woman is carrying this grief forward into into her future and then multiple viewings where you start when you realize what has gone on and then you watch it the next time now every time she's responding to the flashbacks flash forwards now she's got this complex journey of play the grief but also play the confusion play the disorientation and how to pitch that so beautifully not overdo it on, you know, she just, and to have a lot of delicacy and, 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 and repeat like it, it's a, you know, the, all the, the coded messages in the film about repetition. She's obviously in a repeat mode where she's endlessly remembering the future, but not understanding the future. And, you know, she's in a cycle and I totally, I mean, she gives me that feeling of vertigo or disorientation purely in her face or the way her shoulders move or they, they shoot the side of her face. You know, it's it's all, you're correct, it's all to do with her. She holds the center. Yeah, it's it's even more amazing when you learn, I mean, it wasn't shot in sequence, no, so few films are, um, but I was positive it must have been because otherwise you would lose your mind. I, I don't know how you anchor yourself. And I've actually had the chance to talk to Denny once or twice since about his about that film and that shoot and he just said there was just no way it wasn't there's no possibility we wanted to they they wanted to but with all the effects and all the all the green screen work it just wasn't feasible um i think he said he, i'm sure he was kidding but i think he said it would have killed her um, if, they, <laughs> if they tried which is just, not a good look no, not a good just for a movie. going back and forth with decontamination scenes and then calm scenes and then and then it wouldn't have been possible but i love the idea that he thought about it um, yeah. that there might have been a chance because his, his way of shooting has always been to just do whatever the story demands. And in this case, you have a story that has to be almost wrestled into shape by the audience. It's up to us to interpret it. And if we can't follow it, he loses. So he has to bring us on side uh, narratively in, in ways that are unobtrusive, don't take away from the wonder of what what is actually happening which is that this is a movie about first contact with aliens even though it's not their first contact with us which again i love mm -hmm. um and to create something that is you know believable but coherent and and intelligible to us as well um not just emotionally but narratively isn't that the real you know superpower of this film that that the magic the magic trick they're playing in the structure and the magic trick he's playing as, a, a, you know, as a, an incredibly um, accomplished director and obviously with his editor and his team, mm -hmm. that they understood how, what a tightrope they were walking in terms of the drip of information and how much was too much or too little, you know, to keep me, to keep the mystery and the tension to know when I might start to, Cop, you know, I might start to unravel it a tiny bit and mm -hmm. just to give me enough to to confuse me, but then to, you know, switcheroo back to the aliens and continue this, you know, this 
metronomic drip over the course of, you know, and I realized, and I hadn't realized it until I watched it again the other night before talking to you, that the first flashback after the first sequence, which is mm. the you know, the Max Richter moment, and then they, they go into the proper science fiction meeting aliens film in the future, allegedly. The very like the first flashback slash flash forward is like about an hour in, like it's it's fifty or so minutes in, you know. So it's not even as though they were doing it all the way along. They they understand that the way that's the expert, that's the expert storytelling you're seeing. I remember sitting, and it's many 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 years ago now. I sat beside Thelma Schumacher at an event once, the editor Thelma Schumacher, and she said, um, "We all we talked about was how you stay fresh when you're making a film." to what the audience know or don't know. You know, you start watching it over and over again as, you, as you're shooting it and writing it and editing it and all that. How do you keep knowing what they yet don't know or what you want them to not know or, or how you risk what they might know or, you know, and we were talking about that for hours because it's really, really, this is a film that does it so magnificently. And not only does it so magnificently for your first screening, gives you another layer or 12 the next time and then the next time again, you know. So they're working at a an incredibly, you know, impressive level in terms of storytelling, aren't they, in terms of structure? Oh, yeah. I've never understood how some directors, John Sayles, for example, can only edit his own films. No one else will. He, he won't work with anybody else. He just says he's never needed it. But I don't, I don't know how on a project like this, where, because not to be reductive, but sales very rarely plays with structure. Um, maybe, well, Lone Star, that's the only one I can think of where he's really playing with what we know when, when we know it. So he's dealing with a novelistic straight line of, of character development. And I guess maybe that's what allows it. But something like City of Hope, which has so many moving parts, and he still yeah, manages yeah. to pop them in and make them all cohere. And then there's something like this where, yeah, you have to trick us, the viewer. And you know the secret. And not only do you know the secret, but you've lived with it for so long by the time you get to the set, never mind by the time you get to the, the editing bay, to have fresh eyes and to have a sense of surprise is it's it's the scariest thing I can imagine for something like this. I'd love to know how much how much it changed in the edit. You know, I'd love to know if all those flash forwards, flashbacks <laughs> were as written, you know, or mm -hmm. how much of it was an organic thing that they they found their way through. Because all that footage of her childhood and, and her life, the child's life, it feels like found footage, doesn't it? I mean, it feels like a half a beat here, a drip there, a tiny glimpse of something there, you know. And that's his genius as a filmmaker in terms of the cinematography. It feels so light and so delicate and and like we just kind of happened upon it you know of course you know that that it, <laughs> as well it means massively curated but it has that feel and that opening section with all the memory um I would love I would love to I, I've never I've never managed to find anywhere that tells me so if you're ever talking to Denis again find out for me you know how much of it was as scripted and as 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 exacting as scripted, or how much of it was when they saw the glory of what they had with all the children, how they, how they would lay it out. Yeah. Do you need to go out and find more of this footage? Do you have a, do you even have a plan for what the film will look like when you start shooting? Because so much of it is going to be based on the performances that you get in the moment and the the world that you're building. 
Yeah. I, it's again, I'm, I would be just, I would collapse into panic before ever getting to set. <laughs> but he has the confidence to bring you along too. That's the, and, and it was a surprise to me to realize that this is the film where he developed that sort of zero gravity camera thing that he does, which makes perfect sense. Cause he wouldn't have had the opportunity to do it before. Yeah, but yeah. also the technology finally got there for him. I don't know if he could have made this movie two years earlier. Cameras wouldn't have been as as glidey and CG wasn't quite there. And the thing he does, of, and it's his signature now of giant objects falling elegantly through the sky. Um, other people are now trying to do it and not getting it right, which I find absolutely fascinating. And, and I'm, I'm convinced that Bradford Young is doing something with mismatched descent where you're watching the camera on some level, it's convincing you that it's trying to keep up with an object, you know, the way that <laughs> Spielberg's dinosaurs move in, in Jurassic yeah, yeah. Park. And that there's just something that can't be predicted and the camera is just hoping it lands in the right spot. At least, have, in, at least in arrival. Yeah, and to have the vision to know that that's actually a bit like CGI, the way we, our, our brain and our eye knows what we what we expect it to look like, you know, mm -hmm. to understand that the camera would have that that nature, you know. But you know, it's amazing when you talk about it, ginormous things tra traveling from the sky. I thought that the scale in Arrival was incredible, you know, the, the size of the, the beautiful lens-like craft and the size of the, of the alien when it's revealed later on. And then I saw the scale he was working with in Dune. Yeah. <laughs> This, these massive, massive craft. And then he pulls back and reveals they're just these tiny little landing craft <laughs> that are the size of a planet. The actual spacecraft is massive, you know? So it's it's, uh, it's really, really interesting. Even those ideas are, uh, to do with, uh, you know, scale and, 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 and all of that. Yeah. It's been such a pleasure watching him get more money <laughs> because he can play. He can really, he'll do one thing in every movie, even something like Prisoners, which eh, it's fine. It's um, it's too, it's, the script is, I think, the issue. It's just too long. And then he'll still come up with ways to make you enjoy what Gyllenhaal is doing because he makes it very clear very quickly that this character is the overactor, that it's not a performance yeah, of yeah. a perform, I mean, that it's a performance of a performance. And that, I guess it's the same thing that, that I was talking about with nocturnal animals, where he can just, where where an actor can plug themselves into something and indicate to us that they're in on the bit. But here in Arrival, the the unreadability of so many of the actors, of so many of the cast, the characters becomes a plot point. Um, I, I, you know, I Mark O'Brien, who who plays the the turncoat uh, soldier, yeah. um, he's excellent. Of, He's great. Uh, we He did the podcast for the home video release of Arrival. Um, and so he was telling me, it's like, oh, I'm a good guy. I, you know, if you track it backwards, I'm actually trying to save everyone. And, and, you know, he's not evil. He's just too good at his job. And it's there. Like, you see it. He is not plotting in the film. He's trying to be helpful. He's just getting it wrong. He and, and one or two other characters that keep coming with him, they're all they're all used in the film as brilliant misdirect. You know, they'll yeah. often cut to them and go to them in a moment when she's just had a little moment of remembering, you know, and and, and it it pulls your eye. You're like, oh, hang on, wait, <laughs> what's going on over here? So you don't get the moment. That's what we're talking about, the genius of the structure, the genius of the storytelling. You don't get to relax into what you know, and she looked a little, you know, they just it's the switcheroo again. They pull your eye over. 
back to you know the A line, <laughs> the A, the A story. Yeah, not give you a chance to become sure-footed in your desire to to unpack what you've just half seen or suspected you saw. But I loved him. I thought he was he. You're absolutely right. He plays it as you know defender of the <laughs> and he's guys you see the guy that's on the call to his wife in it saying oh don't worry it's all in hand I yeah i think so yeah i think so um it's the other thing too is the sense that especially now i mean it's impossible to imagine that this movie was made before trump but you know the, yes. what america has become in that interval really does like of course there would be nativists of course there would be people in the military who don't want this to happen and yeah. do think that they're doing the right thing by you know keeping america for humans or whatever it is that they're trying to do but the the global sense of it plays out in such a beautiful subtle way where that conflict is escalating in the background and and really doesn't even enter into the story because we're so close on on uh, on louise on on adam's character that we we forget that oh that's right there's six others there there these this is not the only seed there there are plenty more and and the aliens are being so unforthcoming that yeah a, par a more paranoid government would have i mean this is like we're we're talking maybe 8 days after the balloons started being shot out of the sky and those yeah. are that's the that's what we perceive as a positive american government doing that she, i mean i think, think there's one scene where she says something like um what could he, he, they're talking about? You know, they're shutting all the, the the sites down or whatever. And she's going, "This is really important." She said, "What could be more important than this?" And then somebody walks in and says, "Oh, you know, Colonel, the Secretary of State, or you know, it's like the President or something is on the line." And it's one of those big clangor moments. You're like, "Oh yeah." So there's, there's like there's multiple layers of diplomacy or or otherwise going on here, and she's just a little you know know at the bottom of it but but by then in the film in terms of the the magic act you're also now starting to all the complex conversations about how would we communicate with aliens and all these layers the, the truly and the truly alienness of what is being created the way they live in this vapor the way they're kind of like they look like whales or spiders or you don't know the size of them you don't understand gravity you know the, the the craft is made maybe from rock or something you know like all of that alienness have just taken all of your eye it's now starting to, you know it amazing and huge and momentous as it is you are now starting to zone in back in on something tiny which is this woman this love story this dead child and and this, the dialogue to do with little things being thrown away. She says, oh, I realized my husband left me. And he goes, oh, you were married. And you're like, oh, no, you know, an older. Now I'm only one to know about this. And as I said, that's the magic act of it, isn't it? That actually at the heart of all of this huge story about reality and perception and time and vastness. And actually it's about love. It's about um, people. It's about connection. Yeah. And it doesn't feel reductive in the way that so many other versions of the story have felt, you know, when it turns out that it's that everything is connected and it's all about this story and it's your, your own self-enlightenment is the most important thing. All of these things are true, but the canvas is so expertly appointed that it works within those things. Uh, the only other movie I think of when I think of this sort of thing is The Abyss, which, 
you know, yeah, is, is yeah. an incredibly corny version of a love story because that's how James Cameron writes. But he uses archetype in a way that almost no other filmmaker can and somehow finds a, like a purity for his actors to just play the truth of these scenes. And in those moments, you don't go for metaphor. Like you, you'd be declarative and say what you're feeling and yell it very loudly across the ocean floor if you had to. And Arrival is so quiet that it allows the room for interpretation rather than the breakneck pace, even though the fate of the world is technically on the line two or three times now and in the future, Villeneuve's created a space for you to think about what you would do in this situation. Like he leaves room for the audience in a way that almost nobody else in genre does. Uh, Blade yeah. Runner is the same and, and maybe not so much Dune, but it's because that story is so big and, and so mechanical in its, in its, motives you know there's the, rather that's not fair but the mechanism of the first act is is so essential to ending the film where it ends and all of that stuff but but blade runner and, and arrival particularly are movies that ask you what you would do and give you time to think about it even as other things are happening and i still don't know how he does it he just he shushes you before you start <laughs> shushes is that a, is a verb yeah you know like the, the intelligence and the the trust the trust he shows the audience and allowing them to ha to give them space to 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 figure it out. I mean that that's that's why the film works so so well. There is it's so watchful, it's so delicate. Whilst addressing huge themes, it's still holding the line. You know, it holds the line in terms of its its central. So unlike Cameron, it, it isn't sentimental and declarative and, you know, like performative. It's actually going, it's pulling you right into something very, very intimate. And, and it does it in such a trusting way or such a confident way that you trust the filmmaker every step, you know, and, uh, and it's beautiful to watch. It's Norm interrupting my own show to bring you up to speed on Shiny Things, my twice-weekly newsletter about physical media, culture, and the odd streaming project. Last week, I wrote about MPI's 4K release of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Arrow Video's wild Blu-ray limited edition of Sammo Hung's action comedy extravaganza, Millionaire's Express. It's a blast. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at shiny-things.ghost.io or find a link at the Semcast Twitter account. Look, I have to write about movies. It's the law. Come check it out. Let's talk about the linguistics. I, I, you know, as, as someone with a scientific background, how did this strike you? How do you feel it handles the idea of an unknowable language? I thought, you know, I, I think it handles it visually really incredibly. Those, the the circles and the, the hieroglyphs, you know, this this coded symbolism to do with time and uh, and how we how how they can create a sentence back to front or you know from all at once you know i thought it was really really interesting because uh, unlike the, the short story it, it 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 went more um more visual on it you know like it, it it gave you a chance to it didn't ask you to understand it it just asked you to understand that every time these these symbols appear more information is being understood you know so i thought in a really nice way although i i love films that also go you know deep dive into kind of complex science or, you know, have, have that. I, I really like that it gave me, and I think um, Forrest Whitaker's character in the film even says it at some point. He talks about 
oh, this is kind of grade grade school uh, linguistics, you know, like it's like you're teaching a child how to speak English and she's going, well, yeah, <laughs> you know, so I thought that they handle that really, really well without talking down to us. You know, they 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 gave us a little of the simplistic and then they kind of leaped ahead. And uh, yeah, I thought they, uh, I I can't find any fault in any department. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a fan. It is something that like, as a challenge is, Again, it's the kind of thing that you either fix onto the page or you you never solve. And Eric Heiser's adaptation is so efficient and elegant at stripping out. And I'm assuming that Denis has something to do with this as well, that it's a collaborative uh, work on this, even on the day of shooting, where you realize what you don't need and what you can deliver with just a, a, a nod or a gesture or, or an, an exasperated sigh, which we see a lot. And the the larger metaphor of the of the story is about destiny, whereas the larger metaphor of the film is about not listening uh, and missing destiny, which I, I find really like that is not something I got out of Ted Chang's short story. And it's because you can't see the faces of people as they talk over each other. And, and that's what cinema does, or maybe, you know, the stage, but certainly for a project like this, you need the camera to be right up in people's faces as they choose not to listen to each other. And that is so fascinating. The, the only other science fiction movie that I can think of that's attempted something like this is probably Close Encounters. And in that movie, I, I find it so striking that there are no villains, that there are just yeah. people with, with different interests who don't listen to each other. And if they did listen to each other, everything would be fine. Arrival has a much bigger version of that problem but it's so human that it plugs us right into the story. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> like the, the humanity of the story is it's, and I, I guess he knows exactly what he's doing, that I'm going to take you on this journey into this philosophical and and. and physical like the nature of time like I'm developing a documentary about time I mean time would blow your head off <laughs> like nothing about time makes any sense he's wading right in to this this idea around time that our our understanding of time as a linear present past present future that it's all wrong and meaningless and is only something literally limited because of our local limitations and our bodies and our you know our experiences that you know that if you could if you could be somebody else if you could be in a different galaxy in a different universe that your understanding of time might be completely different and it's also true and you know but to have taken all those huge ideas and yet to make to make it just about the personal I, I think that's uh that's an incredible thing to do and 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 why the film works on so many levels, like as an intellectual, you know, as somebody, you know, something that's arguing big, big ideas around grief, about communication, about aliens and communication, all that. And yet also in a non-sentimental way, continually asking you what it means to be human and what, what, what that central question that she asks, if you could see your life all the way from beginning to end, would you change it? You know, like at its core, what a, what a, a, a philosophical question for a, you know, a sci-fi film to be asking you and, you know, and, and not answering for you. Yeah. It, which is also wonderful. It is. It's remarkable. Um, 
I still, I think what now we're seven years away from it. And I don't, I still don't think there's been anything like it except, you know, Denny's other films, which I also find wonderful that he's continuing down this, like Dune was not totally my thing, but I get why he made it. And I understand its importance to him. And so I'm curious to see how he handles part two, but at the same time, I, I kind of think this might be his masterpiece. It might be his masterpiece, but I, I would direct you to, and you, I'm sure you've seen them. Claire Denis' High Life is, is you know, that's yeah. asking some different, but but different, but same, you know, profound questions about us. And also a wonderful Swedish science fiction film called Anyara. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I love Maybe that we, film wading into that idea of time as well you know like a moment of five thousand years later you're like wait what (laughs) (laughs) i can't remember which chapter it is but it's fairly early on in the film where there um in anyara just for people who haven't heard it it's a or haven't seen it it's a story about a space arc between earth and mars that gets knocked off course within a week i think of of launch and never gets home it's it's actually the serious version of of Armando Iannucci's HBO series Avenue 5 um, <laughs> which which struck me as of course he's seen that and of course he would see the bureaucratic comedy of it um but in Aniara the characters on board just they never settle because they're told that they'll be they'll be rerouted soon enough and every attempt fails and then there are chapter headings that tell you how far in you are, and it becomes a running gag. But the first one where I actually laughed out loud, because each chapter heading says, you know, like the ship, the people, the 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 spa, things like that. And then finally, there's one that's like chapter eight, the cult. Uh, <laughs> oh, no, the cult's plural. And it's just like, okay, this movie has a sense of humor. It knows exactly what it's doing. Yeah, yeah. But, oh, yeah, no, just big, heady science fiction films. And and uh, Akash Sherman, uh, a, a Toronto filmmaker, made a movie called Clara. Um about the search for meaning in the universe uh, as filtered through the lens of a relationship that doesn't make it. It followed Arrival by a couple of years ago. Uh, yeah, 2018. We're all looking for the same thing as an audience, which I find fascinating. We all want meaning from cinema and we all want hope from science fiction, even the most disaster-based monster rampage movies generally end with people making it through or, you know, dying with grace, um, like Cloverfield, which is still one of my favorite examples, spoilers, but, um, but arrival. Wasn't it wonderful, though? Wasn't it wonderful to be watching science fiction that, that wasn't just leaning in and digging deep into those tropes of, of, you know, alien invasion and, and, you know, militarized, you know, that actually had all those ideas. It wasn't cowboys and Indians in space. It was actually, it had those ideas, but they were, they were background to what the, the central core was, you know, that, you know, I, I'm, I'm any science fiction that allows me room and respect and and treats me like an intelligent person who's capable of understanding a lot of nuance gets my vote and it does it uh every frame yeah i wanted to i before we pivot to to your own work because i see one weird connection that i really want to explore <laughs> um we haven't even mentioned jeremy renner which is un, it seems unfair because he's he's kind of being doofusy the last few years i don't know how else to explain it <laughs> We go with that. But as he's used here, as as he's deployed as an actor and the the role that he's been required to fulfill, 
I was so struck by how much complexity he brings in. Like, this is a guy who hasn't been asked to do this sort of acting for a while, you feel. And it's not just because of the Marvel thing, it's because a lot of the roles he took in the interim were also similarly undemanding. And mm -hmm. here he is giving a full and thoughtful performance and never trying to steal the center. He's, he's an expert supporting role. And, and, and you're absolutely right, not trying to overcome her, you know, and playing <laughs> the wife, <laughs> you know, the, yeah. the girlfriend, the, the kind of the B-roll, like, but, and, and, and playing it like such an ordinary guy, obviously with a brain the size of Ireland, but actually being prepared to just be the guy in the t-shirt that's, you know, just like it was, it's really, and I hope he's doing well now. I know he was injured recently, but, uh, you know, in the Hurt Locker, like he had such complexity and such depth, you know, and it'd be, it is wonderful to see, to see, would be, will be, will be wonderful to see uh, all, all, all the, the, the depth he, he'll have in roles in the future. Oh, yeah, I'm sure he's going to bounce back. He's, he's already, you know, Instagramming to his okay. fans and, and letting Thank people God. know he's, <laughs> he's recovering. Uh, but it, it is such a, yeah, it's, it's just, it's the kind of role where, or it's not the kind of role, it's, it's the kind of studio picture where, for a minute, I was just worried that he was the compromise that, you know, fine, we'll do it. With, we'll take Renner. He's a name, but he's right for this part. And he's good at stepping backwards and still showing us the growing attraction and the feeling and to the point where the, the fact that he is the choice, right? As you say, he's the wife, he's, he's the, he is the love interest and the object that, that she's chasing without knowing it. But it is a, it's a smolder that works. Like he is getting, he is getting closer to her as she is understanding his role in her life. And the, the mutuality of that is Absolutely. so sophisticated and fascinating. Absolutely. And it's, it's part of the magic trick as well, that he's almost not somebody we see until he, he's kind of drifts right in front of us, you know, yeah. and then this gorgeous moment when we're back with the baby and it, hands up to his face and you're like oh it's him and then amy adams in the film turns to him it's almost like that was the first time it had been revealed to her that he was the guy you know like and it's so it's this beautiful love story that's woven so delicately and so so intelligently and, and he's the perfect face for it because he's absolutely gorgeous looking and yet he could be just every other guy as well you know he can and for Amy Adams has that quality as well isn't she really like she could be every woman and superstar you know when you see her in that ball gown at the uh, at the incredible ball at the end you know she's so beautiful and incredibly beautiful and and, and elegant and yet yeah sorry, you can see her someone who would yeah and she yeah. also just likes it just looks like you know your friend or Somebody who comes out of their house wearing sweatpants and a t-shirt and is just ordinary. So he he had that magic trick too that he just he grew as the film as the film went on, both in yeah. his performance and in in how the camera started leaning towards him. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's amazing. The next time I run into Villeneuve, I will just make him do this. <laughs> we'll talk about his own <laughs> film. I'll, I'll make an exception for both of us. And the children, the children performances in the film as well are incredible. I don't know how many kids they had, but they had about three or four ages of, of that child. I thought they were they were stunning. Having directed a young child or a young boy recently, I'm in awe of, um, you know, it's a challenge, you know, in a really great way. If, if there's a risk, <laughs> you're rolling a huge dice 
with a child. And uh, I thought the performances of all those uh, little girls were were stunning as well. Yeah. And, and that's kind of the hook that I was going to use to get to Joyride, because there is something resonant between the two films in, in, in two ways, now that I think about it. One is that the entire movie is about the possibility of a future that isn't the future that Joy planned for herself. Yeah. And the other is the fact that Olivia Coleman managed to carry an entire life in her performance with maybe three lines of dialogue about who she was before we met her. All of it is implied and inferred. And how do you do that? How do you manage that in a film that is ultimately sort of a breakneck comic road trip slash chase movie that, that you have this clear other goal that is slowly revealed to us over the course of the film and hidden in plain sight? How, when did you know you could do that? Like the, the script obviously had that, you know, you're right, it's a it's a feel good, big hearted road movie and you're having a lot of fun. And, you know, they're foul mouthed, bickering away, like all great comedy duo, you know, like all road movie duos mismatched and they don't want to be together. So the film is doing, you know, that's the A line. That's the, the straightforward going through. But obviously it has this it has this huge heart and this complex complex story to do with childhood and to do with self-love and Olivia's character has this uh, she's been bequeathed all this self-loathing out of a damaged childhood so it's all in there and as the film kind of you know rolls along that stuff is bubbling up and and that was in the script and and you know I always quoted the the, the famous Seamus Heaney poem about um it's a beautiful poem called Postscript which is about you know go out to the west of Ireland where the buffeting winds might catch your heart and blow it open, you know, and it was kind of along that idea of if we just stay with the center idea, which is this mismatched pair, and as they travel and then as the, you know, the landscape changes, they change, then this other, this other weight and, and heart and truth can just bubble out, you know, can just kind of seep out and, Obviously, Olivia, you know, she's a genius. And, and Amy Adams, I think, had some of that quality in Arrival too. This really, really courageous performance. She doesn't demand that you like her. She's quite happy in Joyride to be to be playing a role of a woman that people don't like. You know, she's foul-mouthed, she's feisty, she's recalcitrant, she's not a people pleaser. And Olivia Coleman, being the genius she is, she's just She's really, really brave and capable of doing that without, you know, without deviating. And and she she spoke to Charlie Reed, who plays the young boy, Molly, and he, he tells the story of how her she said to him, let's just be, you know, we'll just be these two characters together, you know, just really be it with me. And so she led him and kind of allowed him. Uh, so they, they came on set kind of fully formed. And, you know, I, I didn't know if they if the magic act of allowing that seeping, that real truth and authenticity, you know, real heart would seep out over time. But they were so, they were so committed to being, uh, you know, bowsies at the start and allowing you to judge them or not like them or whatever. And then allow it, allow the film to just turn, you know, and, and it really does it as, as the story unfolds, it, it, you know, they surprise you, they surprise you in their own vulnerabilities and they surprise you in their own strengths. You know, 
the little boy Molly reveals himself to be a, a dab hand with with babies and with love and with love yourself and you know this is all good and basically teaches is more mature and is more um you know impressive than all the adults in the film and uh, yeah I don't know if I answered your question I <laughs> oh, I, th- I think so it's in there yeah I mean the um the idea too of a kid who's you know, preternaturally equipped to deal with with adults who don't understand their own motivations and them, themselves. It's not a new one, but uh, it's all about specificity when you tell these stories. The same way Arrival is that was always Roger Ebert's dictum: a movie's not what it's about; it's about how it is about it. Yes. And it's always been kind of first and foremost in my mind as an audience member, as a viewer, uh, and, a, and a film critic to plug in to someone or something or a vision. And if the movie can tell me very early on that it knows what it's doing, I'm on board. And in both cases, like Arrival starts with the end of the world and Joyride starts with the end of Molly's world. Really, you know, he's learning finally that he can't trust his father and has to get out on his own and then meets this other person who desperately needs his help, even though she refuses to acknowledge it. And I'm still not sure if I'm talking about Joy or her baby in this case. but. (laughs) Quite right. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a journey of discovery, which is the thing you never want to see in a pitch document. But if it's if a movie isn't about that, then why are we even there? And of course, road movies. Although Alva Kyogen, the writer, claims it's not a road movie, but uh, you know, I think it is. They're in a car the whole time. <laughs> we'll have to t- you'll have to take have her on and quiz her about that. But you know, I said like all road movies, we know the rules. You know, we and there's great um, self fulfilling prophecy joy to do with. We know how it's it's supposed to play out, and when it does, we're 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 heartened by that. You know, we're thrilled that we understood the rules, mm. and we don't mind them breaking the rules as well. You know, so we've got a lot of space for um and 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 that idea of they need each other, they don't want to be together, and yet they you know true each other. They find the family, the 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 hope, the healing that they needed. It, it, it's so rewarding, isn't it? It's so rewarding because that's that's one of your. Uh, you know, seven big stories, you know, like that it's, that's what we love. That's what we want in a non-cynical, non-sentimental, you know, not, not a plug pulling out all my heartstrings in a cynical way, which I, which the film definitely uh, I doesn't do. I, I, I hope. No, I mean, it's, there is nothing wrong with giving an audience the thing you said you were going to give them as long as you do it. Yeah. In a way that, that makes sense for the story and doesn't, yeah, it doesn't pander, I guess is the only way I would frame it. Um, and this, I, we, I can't possibly conceive that there is an answer to this that works, but I have to ask, because it's the question that we always go out on, is there anything of Arrival that you have borrowed or lifted or outright stolen anything from Arrival? And, and while I can't see it for Joyride, I'm really curious about this documentary about time. Yeah, I, I, certainly in my documentary about time, and also I'm deep in development hoping to shoot uh my next film late, later this year or early next year. And Arrival is definitely a touchstone, um, both visually, um, in terms of the light and the delicacy and the colours, you know, there's, there's such a, a, a an incredible visual tone to it that I absolutely love. But also, and most specifically, in terms of both my films that are I'm hoping to do this year, um, that they, in terms of the intelligence, you know, the intelligence the trust towards the audience, the, the watchful, deliberate delicacy and not rushing it and not losing your, your way or your cool, allowing the audience to have space to figure it out. That's, 
that's what I would would want to uh, rip off if I could, you know, and, and reproduce, but uh, in in a tiny way, <laughs> I would love to. My thanks to Emma Reynolds, whose charming first feature, Joyride, is now available on digital and on demand in Canada and the U.S. and pretty much everywhere else. It's also streaming on Paramount Plus in Ireland and the U.K. Thanks also to NG Power. She knows what she did. You can find Emer on Twitter at Emer P. Reynolds, all one word, and you can find Arrival on 4K Blu-ray and DVD from Paramount Home Entertainment and streaming on Crave in Canada and AMC Plus in the U.S. It's also available to rent or buy on various VOD platforms. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast there at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. The first year of the show is still available for just 20 bucks at payhep.com slash semcast. That's the first 52 episodes of someone else's movie, 44 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. And check out my newsletter, Shiny Things, at shiny-things.ghost.io. I think you'll enjoy it. Our theme song is by the last year. If you like it, or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been listening. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe. Watch movies. Wear a mask if you go out. Get your booster when you can. I'll see you next week.